It is sure good to be back with you today, and Ann and I have just grown to love our times of worship with you. And, you know, this is Easter week, the most important week of our faith. I know a lot of you love Christmas and all, but still, it doesn't compare to the importance of the cross and the resurrection, and that's what we get to focus on. And I, I'm very thankful to be able to preach here next Easter weekend. You know, when I retired from Johnson Ferry after 38 years as their pastor, I thought I'll probably never get to preach on Easter again. What pastor ever wants to give up his pulpit on Easter? And so to have an opportunity to preach, but y'all have me lined up seven sermons next weekend. So you're gonna to need to really pray for this elderly gentleman to, to be able to get through all of that with anticipation and joy. Uh, in the service earlier today, Nate read from John 12, John's account of Palm Sunday. And in the account in John and the account in Matthew about Palm Sunday, you see a direct quote of what we're going to look at today, and that is Old Testament prophecy, the prophecy of Zechariah. So I want to ask you to do something. If you're new to Bible study, this may be a harder book for you to find, but here's a clue. Listen now. If you don't know where Zechariah is, find Matthew and go backwards just a couple of books. You'll be right there at Zechariah chapter 9. And we're going to look at two verses of this prophecy that occurred 500 years before Palm Sunday. Let's stand now for the reading of God's word from the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fold of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Father God, as we stand before you and as we focus today on how you the king have a coming that is twice. We pray that you will speak to us today and you'll help us to understand how both the old covenant and the new covenant is all about pointing to Jesus. And so, Father, may we receive your word in faith. May we live your word in faith as we focus this time on you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Nobody does pomp and splendor like the Brits. Nobody comes close. And if you're old enough like me to remember a wedding that happened a long time ago between Princess Di and Charles, you'll remember how all the world was looking at that spectacle and the crowds were out literally by the millions there in London on that big day. It was some kind of pomp and ceremony. But also, you not only have Di's wedding, but you've got 
Queen Elizabeth. Now, she's kind of the new definition of eternal life. She's going to seem to reign forever when it comes to being the royal queen of England. But there's pomp and ceremony around Elizabeth at certain times where the streets are just filled by the thousands. It's a time of celebration. Now, Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they were praising him with great crowds as their king, their Messiah. But it was a bit different from the pomp and ceremony of what we see in a place like Great Britain with their royalty. Let's go back to Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. What is Zion? That is Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now, what's interesting is they really believe with great anticipation that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. Now, there are a few things that have led to this. It's been hundreds of years of silence before John the Baptist appeared in the desert and began to prepare the way for the coming of their Messiah. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching of Jesus over these last three years. They have come to a consensus among the crowd that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. So there's great celebration in the streets. Now, understanding that, then we see what the character traits of this king are. He is just. Can you imagine having a king, a president, a prime minister that is completely just? Can you imagine? That is completely righteous. Wouldn't that be amazing? And not only that, it says here in Zechariah, 500 years before Palm Sunday, that this king will be endowed with salvation. Salvation from what? We'll talk about that in a moment. But the people had a view about salvation that was a bit different from what God in Jesus Christ had. Also humble. Now, that's not usually a character trait of many kings. Humble. And he showed his humility by being mounted on a donkey, not just any donkey, even on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, we don't have pomp and splendor like the Brits, but we do have the inauguration of American president. Can you imagine a scene when we have a new president and he's on a little bitty scooter with his helmet on riding down Pennsylvania Avenue? That wouldn't be a real impressive sight. And that's kind of like it was for Jesus entering, not just on a donkey, but on a little baby donkey. Probably his feet were dragging the ground. I mean, that's a different kind of entry. Very different from kings of the ancient world. When Alexander the Great would enter a city after conquering that city, he would be riding astride his great horse, Bucephalus. And Bucephalus was a horse like secretariat in American folklore. He was far bigger than other horses, so majestic. Legend says that at 12 years old, Alexander the Great volunteered to tame Bucephalus when no other man could. And he did at 12 years old, and his father, Philip, thought, my goodness, this young man is something special. So when a king of the ancient world would stride in on a magnificent horse, that was a different sight. But Jesus comes in on the back of a baby donkey, like a Shetland pony. I mean, think about that. That's a different sight. 
But then we see that what's so amazing here is this is the fulfillment of prophecy of what would occur about 500 years later on this day, Palm Sunday. So turn to John 12 that Nate read a minute ago. Let's go to John 12, verse 12, the fourth gospel. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, what's the feast? It's Passover. When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, why the large crowd? Now, everybody understand the setting. There are three great feasts of the Jews, Passover, about 50 days later, Pentecost, and then in the fall, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. During these three great feasts of the Jews, any able-bodied Jew, especially Jewish men, were expected to gather into Jerusalem for those feasts. So the city would sometimes swell to 10 times its ordinary size. Now, Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, and the Roman soldiers would be stationed at Caesarea by the sea, by the Mediterranean Sea, but they would come in for these three feasts into Jerusalem in order to be sure that order was maintained because you've got crowds like that, all kind of problems could arise. And so the crowds are there because Passover is coming in a few days and the Jews from all over the known world are beginning to gather there. But also they have begun to feel that this Jesus really is their long awaited Messiah. So there is such anticipation in the air that the crowds are probably greater than they've ever been in years. And so we see that described in John chapter 12, verse 13. And they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him. They began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, three things are described in the four gospels about this time. One, they were waving palm branches. Why is that? Palm branches were symbolic of victory, of peace, and eternal life. Now, realize this, in the Old Covenant, there's not much about heaven or hell. There's not much about eternal life in the Old Covenant. These are Jewish people. They're waving palm branches that are symbolic of victory and peace and eternal life. That's pretty significant. In the other gospel accounts, we see that they would lay their cloaks, their robes, their coats out on the road. Why would they do that? Well, it was obviously a show of respect, but not only that, it's kind of like when some of you have gotten an autograph of somebody famous or one of the great athletes. You, you, why do people like autographs? They feel a part of that person. Well, when the king, whoever was in it, would walk over their cloaks, their clothing, they felt a part of that. There was a touch there. They were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna means praise, but it not, it not only means that, it means this, save us. Now, think about that. Save us. What were they desiring salvation from? And then we read on in this passage, verse 14, Jesus finding a young donkey set on it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, evidently, we don't know for sure, but evidently Jesus knew the man where the two disciples went. Jesus told him that they would find a donkey, the, the, the little donkey there for him to ride on. And that man let them take it. Now, evidently Jesus knew him or this man just came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah when they told him who it was for. 
They bring that to Jesus and then look at what is quoted here in John chapter 12. It is an exact quote of Zechariah 9.9. You find it in Matthew 21. You find it in this gospel, an exact quote of Zechariah 9.9. Think about that. Jesus knew Zechariah 9.9. He's the author. He's the author. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives the Old Testament prophets the word of God that is timeless. Sometimes they're speaking to their present, very often they are, but many times they're speaking to the future. They don't even always know the difference, I'm sure. But Jesus knows that Zechariah 9.9 is there. Who else? The religious leaders who aren't real happy about this occasion. They don't like Jesus. They're resentful of Jesus for a multitude of reasons. And so they have to know that what is occurring here is a direct fulfillment of prophecy that Zechariah had written over 500 years earlier in the Holy Scriptures. But not only that, verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Now, just a moment ago, I ask you, Salvation from what? Hosanna, which means praise and save us. Save us from what? Think about the setting and the timing. The feast of Passover, the most important of the three feasts of the Jews. Why? Because it commemorates their liberation and freedom from slavery in Egypt. How did it occur? Because God led Moses to tell the children of Israel that the angel of death was coming in that final plague over Egypt. The elder son of the Egyptians would be taken. They didn't understand all that. But Moses told them this. He said, you sacrifice a lamb. Spread the blood on the doorposts so that when the angel of death, the angel of judgment comes over Egypt, that angel will see this is a household of faith through the shed blood of the Lamb. And so the children of Israel, as they are approaching Passover, and they know that it is commemoration of when God set them free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, think about what they're thinking. This king, this Messiah will set us free from the oppression of Rome who have occupied our blessed land in Israel. That's what they're thinking. But God had something else in mind when it comes to salvation. And verse 16 is telling us the disciples didn't understand all this. They didn't understand all this until Jesus had been crucified and resurrected from the dead and perhaps even until the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. Then they understood it all that God's plan for salvation is very different. It begins within our soul, our heart. And Jesus was going to the cross a few days later because the God of the universe loves you so much. He sent his son to make the sacrifice for our sins, to be the shed blood of the lamb at Passover, to save us from death and judgment if we will acknowledge our sin and cry out to God for the grace and mercy and forgiveness that he offers us through what he has done on the cross. And God did this because he loves us. Jesus entered Jerusalem with no illusions at all. The crowd is cheering, but he knows what's coming. He knows why he's been sent. Can you imagine 
Can you imagine that Jesus loves you so much in light of all the sins and shortcomings of your life that he did this for you? Can you imagine? He did it for the crowds cheering him. A few days later, they're going to be screaming, crucify him. Jesus knows all that. But he came anyway because he loves us. It's extraordinary. So as we think about what God wanted them to come to understand about real salvation that begins one life at a time, Jesus didn't come to liberate them from Rome at that point. He came to save their souls so that they could have the victory over sin and death through eternal life, through the resurrection that would come. That was a different thing. Now with that in mind, go back to Zechariah 9, our text for today. Zechariah 9, and let's go to verse 10 that is so often neglected, that is so important in understanding the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9 that was set in motion on the day of Palm Sunday that we're focusing on today. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, what is this about? Now, listen very carefully. Are you listening? Don't miss this. The old covenant is never offering clarity on the difference or the separation of the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. One of the reasons many of your Jewish friends have such a hard time accepting Jesus as the Messiah is that they know there are a lot of scripture in the old covenant that were not fulfilled when Jesus walked the face of the earth. They know that because the Old Testament prophets didn't differentiate. The Holy Spirit would fill the Old Testament prophet with events that were going to occur in the future, but there's no separation or identification of a first and second coming. Let me give you an example of that. A famous verse that perhaps you are very well aware of because of Handel's Messiah that is often sung at Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6. This is one verse now. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, think about this one verse in Isaiah that was prophecy 200 years before Zechariah prophesied what he did and over 700 years before Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. For unto us a child is born. That's a prophecy of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the incarnation of God in human flesh. The second line, to us a son is given. God has given us his only son on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. But then it says, and the government will be on his shoulders. Well, that certainly was not fulfilled when Jesus came. It has yet to be fulfilled and will not be fulfilled on Jesus, until Jesus' second coming occurs. So understanding that, let's look at verse 10 to see the insight that it's sharing with us about the fact that the king is coming twice. First, he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He will come a second time. Look at what verse 10 says. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. What is that about? Well, at the time of this prophecy, Israel was still divided into two groups the kingdom in the north called Israel, the kingdom in the south called Judah. 
The most famous tribe in the north was the tribe of Ephraim. The most famous city in the north at that time was Ephraim. And the most famous city in the south, the kingdom of Judah, was Jerusalem. They were at odds with one another. What the prophet Zechariah is sharing under the leadership of the Holy Spirit is one day all the Jews will be unified once again. No division among the people. That's number one. But number two, and the bow of war will be cut off. Now, what is this about? Well, when Jesus comes a second time, it will be the end of war here on earth. Keep your finger there at Zechariah 9.10 and turn back a few prophets to Micah. The prophet Micah, one of the other minor prophets in Micah chapter 4. Beginning in 4, you see all kind of prophecy about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. We'll read one verse in verse 3 of Micah 4. And he will judge between many peoples. This is speaking of the Messiah. And he will render decisions for mighty distant nations. And listen to this. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. Listen to this. And never again will they train for war. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? When Jesus comes again and he reigns in his second coming, he will at last bring peace on earth to where the weapons of war and all the materials for the weapons of war are transformed into tools for good because there will be no need of making weapons. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a place this peaceful on earth? It will be a new day, completely different from anything that we experience in this day. And that is what Zechariah is speaking of in verse 10 when he will speak peace to the nations. Look back at verse 10 of Zechariah 9. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What is the river? The river is Euphrates River. You go all the way back to when everything was right on the earth in the Garden of Eden. There were four rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden and one of those rivers was the river Euphrates. You can see it today in modern day Iraq. And what God's word is saying is that when Jesus comes a second time as the king of all kings, he will bring peace on earth and his dominion will allow him to reign from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. He will reign over all the earth. Now, understand this. The Antichrist, who will come shortly before the second coming of Christ, he will come claiming to be a man of peace and claiming to be in the name of world peace. But his whole methodology will be different from Christ. His will be by military might and political power, worldly power. And the nations of the earth will begin to be swept away with his incredible greatness and the noble calling of bringing peace on earth, but he will not succeed. He will not be a man of peace. He will be a counterfeit. He will be the opposite of Christ. That's why he's called the Antichrist. But understand the events that are going to allow this to happen. Now listen very carefully because you don't want to miss this because you will miss the scope of what Zechariah is teaching us in just these two verses about the first and second coming of the king. There'll be a time when the Antichrist, as he has consolidated so much of his world power, calling for a one world governance, will turn against Israel. We don't have time to study all the passages that reveal that. But he will turn against Israel. 
and he will gather his troops at a place that Scripture calls Armageddon. Listen to this passage from Revelation 16, 16. Then they gathered the kings together, that's the world leaders and their armies together, to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Why is that? Because the Antichrist will so turn against Israel and probably will communicate a message, a perverted message to the world. If you can just get rid of this troublemaker nation, the Jews, then we'll have peace in the Middle East and then we'll have peace on earth. You can just see him scheming like that. And so he gathers troops from nations all around the world. And it will be a time of human hopelessness for the Jews and the nation of Israel. Because sadly, by that time, all the nations on the face of the earth will be swept up into the euphoria of this charismatic leader called the Antichrist. Even the United States of America, sadly, that has been the main supporter of Israel in its very short history as it was reborn in 1948. But by that time, there will be no defender of Israel and they will be in a totally hopeless situation. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel and you're up on Mount Megiddo looking out over the plains of the, the Jezreel Plain, which is called Armageddon, Napoleon called it the most perfect battlefield on the face of the earth. You stand there on Mount Megiddo and you can just picture millions of troops gathered there in that valley. And why are they gathered there? They're in opposition to God. Many of them don't know that, but opposition to God, opposition to Jesus and seeking to destroy Israel. That's why they're there. Why wouldn't it be Moscow? Why wouldn't it be Beijing? Why wouldn't it be Washington, D.C.? The Bible says it's Armageddon. That's in Israel. That's where it is. And understanding that, how the events unfold, then Israel will realize they're in a desperate plight. There is no one there to help them. And look at what happens. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12, a couple of chapters over. Turn to Zechariah 12, beginning in verse 9. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. In other words, the plains of Megiddo or Jezreel will be the place where the troops are gathered. But obviously, the ultimate attack is planned against Jerusalem. But God is there. He's not forgotten his people. He's not forgotten the Jews when the world is seeking to destroy them. Listen to verse 10. Listen now. And this is God speaking through the prophet. I will pour out on the house of David, that's the Jews, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit and grace of supplication. Listen to this now. So that they will look on me, capitalized, that's God, whom they have pierced. Do you see that? Do you see that? And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadarinim in the plain of Megiddo. That's Armageddon. That's where that is. And this is a Jewish prophet that is prophesying this with the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. Now understand the setting, folks. The Jewish people in the nation of Israel know they are doomed. There is no hope for them unless God intercedes. And so they cry out to God to send them the Messiah to save them because they fear the Antichrist is going to accomplish what Hitler sought to do. 
And when they cry out to God to save them and send them the Messiah, he does. And to their shock, in the clouds, it is Jesus. And there is a great mourning that occurs among the Jewish people that so many of their forefathers, so many of them have been hard-hearted against the gospel, an irrational hard-heartedness against the gospel in rejecting God's only son. And the picture there is of the cross and all of a sudden it's like their eyes will be opened and they will see. There's a veil. Second Corinthians 4 talks about a veil over their eyes. But then they will see. And look at the pro- listen to the prophecy in Romans chapter 11. Listen to this. This is, so, this is so cool. The word of God, Romans 11. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Speaking to Gentile believers. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. In other words, we're in the church age and until the church completes its mission of taking the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth, there's going to be a partial hardening among the Jews in Israel. And we've seen that for 2,000 years now. Yes, there's been a remnant of followers of Jesus that are Jewish back to the early disciples in every age. But there is this hardening of heart, irrational hardening of heart that you see in your Jewish friends in rejecting Jesus. But then, as the full number of Gentiles have come in and Jesus has come for his church, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Do you see that? As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Folks, in a time of desperation where there's nowhere else to turn and the Jews of Israel cry out to God to send the Messiah and he does and it is Jesus, they are stunned and their heart is pierced. They are convicted of their sinfulness and they cry out to God for his grace and his mercy and he extends it, he saves them. And he doesn't just save them from extermination through the hands and the mighty armies of the Antichrist, but he saves them spiritually like so many of you have been saved spiritually when you too realize because of your sin you deserve the judgment of God, but because of God's grace and his love for you, he went to the cross to pay the penalty so you could be saved. And the church and redeemed Israel will be one around the Savior Jesus as we understand The king is coming twice. Zechariah 9.9 speaks about the king coming the first time on Palm Sunday that we are celebrating today. But he will come a second time, as Zechariah 9.10 tells us. And at last, at last will things be on earth as we long them to be. I want to ask you to turn to a couple other passages in Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 14. Verse 4, Jesus appears in the clouds on that white horse. Revelation 19.11 tells you about the events of him bringing judgment on the Antichrist and the millions of troops gathered there. It will not happen as a great war with all kind of weapons that Jesus and the church bring from heaven. It will happen with the sword of the Lord, which is the word of God. In other words, Jesus with a word will bring judgment. That war will be over there at Armageddon. It will be instantly done. And understanding that, then Jesus touches down on earth. Look at Zechariah 14, verse 4. In that day, 
his feet, the Messiah's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Folks, one of the things, when you, if you ever get to go to Israel, and oh man, I recommend if you can ever do it, do it. Because when you have a worship service on the Mount of Olives looking out on the east side of the old city of Jerusalem, you are standing or sitting in the very place where Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection and when he will touch down when he comes again. It is glorious. It's unbelievable to be on that very site. Not only a site of history past, but of history future. It's incredible. And understanding that, we see that Jesus touches down the Mount of Olives. This is the ultimate touchdown. I know some of you big Baylor fans, Texas fans, A&M fans, you cheer when there's a touchdown scored to win the end of the game. But that chicken feed compared to the cheering it's going to be when this occurs. Can you imagine? Nothing comes close to when Christ touches down on the Mount of Olives. And then that's not all. Look at verse 9 of Zechariah 14. Verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. And his name, the only one. Folks, as Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives, descends that hill, the Mount of Olives, and then walks in the eastern gate, the very place of entry that occurred on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, Then as he enters Jerusalem, he will begin to reign from the throne of David. The church, the redeemed church and redeemed Israel will reign with him. As at last he brings peace on earth, the end of war on earth, a place of justice and peace and harmony and love like the world has never seen. At last, here on earth, the earth will be what all of us long for the earth to be. And it will be glorious. And so, on this Palm Sunday, as we begin the most important week of the year as followers of Christ, because we remember about that first entry into Jerusalem by the King Jesus and the price that he paid on the cross coming into Jerusalem, knowing the price he was going to pay because he loves you and me and all that cheering crowd, even though a few days later they would be screaming, crucify him! As we celebrate what he has done for us on the cross and as we celebrate next weekend the glorious resurrection that gives us eternal life and gave Jesus that ultimate victory over sin and death so that we could share in the victory as well. No, no. The rest of the story. It's not yet complete. And these two verses, Zechariah 9 and 10, tell us the full story. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem set all this in motion. But he's coming again. So as you live with a gratitude this Easter week for the salvation that has been achieved through Jesus' death on the cross and your willingness to receive it. And the victory over death that was achieved through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Don't leave out the rest of the story. Jesus is coming again. And he will enter Jerusalem a second time as king. 
a very different kind of king. And in the meantime, the calling of the church is to fulfill our mission in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth so that every people group on earth has an opportunity to respond. And then these events of the end will come. Praise the Lord for the trustworthiness of the word of God, for the trustworthiness of the prophecy of the old covenant, for the trustworthiness of our King of kings and Lord of lords, King Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. Thank you for the trustworthiness of your word. Thank you for how your Holy Spirit reveals how the old covenant and the new covenant give us the complete picture of your coming. Twice. Not once, but twice. And Lord, on this Palm Sunday, as we reflect on your entry into Jerusalem and the events that came about because of that week, we thank you that there is much yet to come. So this Easter week, Lord, as we celebrate with thanksgiving for what you have done, may we also be filled with an extra sense of hope of knowing what you're going to do when you, the King, enter Jerusalem a second time. It will be so glorious. So, Father, for the church, for those of us who are followers of Christ, may we have a greater urgency to share this good news with our neighbors, our friends, our family members, and to the uttermost part of the earth so people will know this good news of Jesus. And, Lord, to the skeptics that are joining us online today or here in person that for some reason have been skeptical about all the claims of Scripture of Jesus, but today the Holy Spirit is convicting them. Oh, my goodness. Now I see. Now I understand. God, forgive me of my sin. I claim the victory that is in Jesus. May they reach out to you now, right where they are, Father. Say, Lord, I need you. I want to follow this King Jesus. I now see your big picture for all of history. I choose to believe. Oh, Lord, may it be. But we pray this prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.